Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have someone from the West Coast, from San Diego originally. So uh, I think that we're going to learn quite a bit on the acquisition process, on starting the business with like other two co-founders, great co-founders that they have a good relationship over the course of time. Uh, but I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ryan Disraeli. Welcome to the show. Hey Alejandro, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. So how was life in San Diego growing up? Did you do a ton of surfing there? How was it? <laughs> um, the rare, uh, the rare San Diegan that didn't surf, but uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a can't complain. It's one of the best places ever, and I, I I do a lot of international travel now for business and for personal reasons, and can't imagine living outside of Southern California. It's uh, pretty spoiled with where I grew up. Very cool, and obviously uh, you had. I mean, your father, your grandfather, I mean, everyone was a dentist and, and you're kind of like the, the exception here. What happened? Yes, I, I have two brothers as well. And uh, this generation ended our, our dynasty of dentists in the family. So uh, my father was a dentist, his father was a dentist, his father was a dentist. And probably if you go farther back, there are more dentists. But um, I, I was the first in the family uh, to be in tech and I have two younger brothers that, that followed there. And I think for me, what was interesting growing up is that I was very interested in the owning your own business element of, of dentistry and the entrepreneurial element, but not so much looking at people's mouths. So um, was definitely took things away from my, my upbringing, but certainly not dentistry was, was definitely not in the cards for me. Got it. So I'm sure that you were able to see how, let's say your father was running the business, the practice, and I'm sure that that got you thinking as to how you run a business, perhaps the the idea of becoming an entrepreneur. So do you remember if there was maybe like a point in time where you said to yourself, one day I'm going to have my own thing and I'm going to, you know, really build something? Uh, I don't know if there's one point, but you're exactly right that, that growing up, I mean, the questions I would ask were always around, like, how do you acquire new clients? Um, how do you manage your practice? How do you manage the people? And so there were always questions really around that, not so much around, like, how do you identify a root canal or, um, or anything that's dentistry related. Uh, but growing up, I was always, always trying to start little small things. Um, so very much interested in, in running my own thing and uh, taking the, the entrepreneurial journey from a pretty young age. And obviously you went, and, uh, you went to USC and, 
business uh, was the major there. Uh, but one thing got you into into the whole idea of startups and incubators, and so then so then what happened there? Yeah, I was uh, so I ended up going to USC, which uh, had a really great business program and specifically a great program around entrepreneurship, um, and still one of the the top programs today. And while I was in school, I got introduced into an incubator, and it was kind of an interesting opportunity to almost be an internal entrepreneur. So. Um, without needing to take capital out of my own, um, really be involved in the early stage of, of starting companies and helping to manage early stage companies, which um, for me was really, really exciting and um, also got me exposed and introduced me to, to some really great people. Because what is the difference between the typical accelerator that you know people can think of, like Y Combinator or Techstars, and let's say like an incubator? What's the main difference? Yeah, this so... I'm not even sure this is a typical incubator, so this may be may be an exception. But um, this incubator was started by um, an Israeli guy who had made a, a, a good living on some offline businesses and was really passionate about technology and entrepreneurship, and brought in a, a bunch of young people, including myself, to go work on different projects and different companies. And so um, I, I think that's pretty atypical not the not the normal type of incubator that you hear about. Um, but for us, it was a really good learning opportunity. And um, for me, it's it's where I, I, I met some really great people that, that ultimately um, we did some great things with. And obviously, this was the segue into um, you starting Telesign. So uh, so what happened there? How did you meet your co-founders and what was that process? Yeah, so I met uh, the, the two co-founders of the company along with myself are Darren Berkovitz and, and Stacey Stubblefield. And they both worked at the the same incubator that that I did, and uh, Telson was really birthed in that incubator, um, really based off of a problem um, that the nephew of the owner of the incubator was seeing, where he was running an online backgammon company based in Israel, and was seeing so much fraud. And this was really the start of card not present fraud for online transactions. That what they started doing is manually making phone calls to every single user after they placed an order. So they would have a call center where after every order was placed, a call would be placed to that user. They would say, hey, just wanted to confirm this order. The user would say yes. They would hang up and call the next person. And um, We recognized this was very inefficient um, and that this was a potential business opportunity. And if this company was seeing fraud, that it was something that was probably replicable across other different types of companies and other different types of industries. So we went out and um, really using you know, outsourced engineers, built an IVR platform, which was basically sending an automated voice call that would ring a user and say, hi, your code is 1234. Once again, your code is 1234. Goodbye. And the end user would type that into the website to verify they are who they say they are. So today you see that you know, anytime you're logging into your Facebook, Google, you know, Microsoft, um, or almost on any type of online transaction. But um, back in 2005, when the company was started, it was a completely new process and completely foreign for end users. Because how, how old were you guys when you started the business? So I was, a, I was a still a teenager in, in college. Um, Darren and Stacey are a few years older than me. Um, but the company was started in 2005, which you look back in 2005, that's before the, you know, the iPhone. Um, I think the iPod Nano is actually the top-selling Apple product. Um, Facebook was just getting started. So it was really a, a totally different generation and, and 
this type of concept was totally foreign when we go talk to companies about it. So what ended up being the business model, Ryan? Yeah, so the business model wasn't very good on day one because we were charging per transaction. Um, so every time we'd make a phone call, we would we would get paid. Um, but our costs were actually higher than the what we could charge for the phone call. So on day one, it was a pretty bad business model because the more business that we got, the more money we were losing. Um, but pretty pretty quickly, we were able to revert that and um, and and you know start trying to acquire customers on a more profitable model. And um, that was what we tried to do very, very early on. I was, uh, you know, fast forwarding to a few weeks ago, I was speaking at our kickoff for our, uh, our, our sales team. And I realized that in the early days with Darren, Stacy and I really spent our time on was really customer acquisition and even more specifically, almost being SDRs, um, sales development representatives going out there and doing everything we possibly could to get uh, potential customers to respond to us and just take a meeting or, or take a call. And so our focus very much in the early days was just around how do we go out there and how do we go acquire customers, um, not only to you know to pay ourselves, but also to learn and um, to be able to evolve the product set quite quickly. And obviously the three of you guys, very special relationship. Um, you guys say have remained co-founders and with good relationship, you know, like it's it's a long time, eh? Since 2005, quite a journey. What do you think made that relationship so unique between the three of you guys? I think in many ways we got really lucky. So uh, I'd like to say that we were brilliant and the three of us got in a room and realized that we have very different skill sets and personalities and we get along perfectly and complement each other, but uh, that's just not the reality. We we, we, I mean, we knew we liked each other and that we worked well together, but we also got really lucky too that our personalities and skill sets really balanced each other. And uh, I think when you go through really tough moments early in a company, it's it's impossible to really not build strength and, and bonds between you. And we're a very rare, rare uh, group of co-founders in the sense that while we debate and disagree and argue on on almost everything. Um, it never gets personal. It never, it never you know, impacts our work. It, it, we never impacts our trust with one another. And so um, I wish I said there was some magic formula and the three of us got in a room and realized that we would be perfect for each other, but it's far from the truth. I think we got a bit lucky and over time realized that it was a, a perfect match and that we had so much trust between each other. Very cool. And obviously during the early days, there were quite a, a bit of outages. So how, how do you deal with those? Yeah. So, I mean, luckily we didn't have many transactions in the early days, but um, we were very much bootstrapped. So there were three of us working full-time on the business. Um, we had some other contractors involved that were working part-time, uh, but our, our original servers were actually in the kitchen of the incubator, which uh, you would be surprised we had many technical issues and outages. And in the early days, we were lucky because we didn't have many transactions either. So when there would be an outage, we could actually see every transaction coming through our system. And Stacy would actually pick up the phone and make the call herself. Um, so she would actually call the user pretending to be a, a robot and deliver the pin code herself. So um, at some point that became impossible to scale. Uh, we, we don't, you know, if that happened today, it would be impossible. We do um, billions of transactions every month. But uh, when you're doing just a few transactions every every minute or so, it becomes possible to have a human intervene every time there's an outage. 
Absolutely. And obviously, for you guys, the the journey of securing that first big customer while you were doing all the bootstrapping was quite a challenge. So so what happened there? Yeah, so we were able to, to always get small customers, but we knew that wasn't really going to grow the business. And we kept going after really large, uh, large logos. And on, on the positive side, we... I mean, we got good validation in the sense that these customers were interested in launching with us. But as soon as they started doing diligence on the company and they would realize that we were just a couple of people without any venture funding and any background. And um, I mean, hopefully they didn't even do uh, checks on our, our servers and where we were located. Uh, they would immediately drop out and we were just too risky for them. They, they liked the concept. They thought it would be valuable to the business, but Moving forward with a company like like Telesign would be really challenging, and um, there's a perfect case of this. Unfortunately, I can't mention the name, but it's a top ten website in the in the U.S. probably globally as well. That we literally sold them three or four times, and every single time we would sell them, we would always go back to procurement at the end of the day, and it would always land on this this woman's name, Nicole's desk. And every time it would somehow make its way back to Nicole. And she would reject us because our financials didn't look good and we were just too risky to do business with. And so our lucky break was that the first big customer we ended up acquiring, um, it's still a very big customer. It's a large web property that at the time um, was still a top 10 website in the US, but they, like Telesyn, were quite small. So they were about 25 people and they either didn't check that we were only three people or they didn't care. And so we were able to acquire them as a customer. And um, that was really the the biggest game changer for us. And we realized that we actually had a real business and could afford to, to add some fuel to grow um, was acquiring that customer. So a lot of persistence, but then with that one you know, final big customer, a bit of luck as well, that they didn't do a lot of diligence on the company before transacting with us. And obviously, the um, you know here you guys um, were able to scale up the team to 10 to 12 uh, employees, but then there was a very important conversation that happened, and that was about bringing a external CEO to the business, which is like pretty um, like the unlike the, it's it's not common to, to to do this. So so why did you guys decided to have that conversation? Yeah, so at, at we we grew the company to about 10 to 12 people and. Um, had acquired actually some other big customers. I think our revenue run rate was almost a million dollars per month. And so not a, not a tiny business by any means and some good traction. And as you can imagine, when you start to see some traction, all the VCs started circulating, uh, cir- uh, circling the business. And we were not an exception to that. We started getting calls from a ton of VCs and um, many of them would fly down to Los Angeles where we were headquartered and um, meet with us. And, and candidly, a lot of them didn't really differentiate themselves. They looked the same, dressed the same, talked talk the same, would ask the same questions. And so we're just trying to look for differentiation. And, and one of the partners that we met with um, was just like, hey, like I have a really great potential board member um, or advisor for you guys that you guys should go meet with. This guy had sold companies in your space, um, really well, really well known, um, you know, admired in the industry. So we went and ended up meeting with this individual and really under the pretense that he could be a great board member advisor for us. And after meeting him, um, the three of us got together and we're just like, hey, like if we could you know, get this guy full time on board to help run the business. It'd be a really big coup for us. And 
what we didn't know is that he was also looking to leave his current job as a CEO of another company. And uh, he went back to the VC and he, he asked like, hey, do you think these guys would be interested in bringing me on? And so it was almost a, a blind date that resulted in the three of us pretty unanimously supporting um, bringing on a, a leader and, and hiring a boss for us. Um, but it wasn't something that we ran a whole process and uh, went out and did a big search and interviewed 10 different candidates. It was a bit opportunistic. And um, it was you know through a VC that introduced us and it was a really good match. So what were some of the, the things that you knew that this person needed to have and, you know, like, and, and what was that day like where you guys finally got fully aligned and said, this is the one? For us, a lot of it was credibility. We could go talk to customers and we didn't have any credibility. We were very, very young, uh, which, which I think now if we were starting the business might be an asset, but back then was, was certainly not viewed like that. Um, we didn't, I mean, we weren't connected if we wanted to go hire a VP of sales, for example, we didn't have anyone in our network that we could go hire. We would have had to hire a search firm to go do that. Uh, and then the second piece, which I touched on earlier, was that we didn't have a structure that could scale. There were three of us making making every decision and getting in a room and debating and, and arguing. And that worked well to get to that point in, in life cycle of the company, but it, it certainly wouldn't have helped scale the company beyond that. And so luckily, the three of us were pretty aligned on bringing someone in. Um, there wasn't a ton of debate. It was one of the few times that we were pretty much all lines. Um, and what it also did is it kind of meant that formally we you could leave the incubator and um, make sure Telesign was run as a as a standalone business that um, really brought in its own people and, and had complete independence from the incubator. Because uh, when it comes to raising money, so obviously, you know, you guys ended up uh, getting an external CEO, uh, started making some good sales. Uh, scaling up the operation. How much capital did you guys raise uh, in total prior to the acquisition? Yeah, so when we hired the CEO, the the original plan was that we would take VC money from the company that uh, introduced us to him. So it would be a, a you know, everything would happen at once. We'd hire a CEO, we'd raise money, and we'd be off and running. And um, what's interesting to us is we wanted the CEO, we wanted the talent, but we didn't really feel like we needed the money at that point. And we were able to elegantly back out um, of taking the money. And, and when I say elegantly, uh, the VC had started to have some concerns on the business and we used that opportunity to to to, to basically uh, pull out of the deal. And I think that was mutual at that point. Um, but about a, a few years later, we decided that we wanted to go acquire a company in our space that was a vendor of ours and had some interesting assets that would help us uh, really control our supply chain and also innovate in the space. And so we ended up going out and raising it was about $29 million, which is a random number, uh, from a Series A, which we ended up raising from the same firm that introduced us to the CEO, but at a much uh, much higher valuation. So it was certainly a win for us. And uh, that was a good deal. We ended up acquiring is a London-based company that had um, a big presence in Belgrade and Serbia, which we continue to grow today. Um, and then a few years later, we ended up raising a bit more capital with the idea of uh, ultimately going out and buying more companies. So we raised about another $50 million of the Series B um, across a few different firms. And we actually ended up never um, using that capital. So we, did, we didn't end up identifying anyone that we pulled across the finish line. We, we evaluated tons of companies, but nothing that ultimately made a ton of sense. And so by the time we were, uh, we were acquired, we hadn't really spent any of that money quite yet. So, so let's talk then about the, 
the acquisition. So how did the acquisition by Biggs happen? Like, what was that process like? Yeah, so uh, so Telesign started getting approached by a bunch of different companies that were looking at the company and um, interested in potentially acquiring it. And uh, for us, I mean, we'd been in the business for a really long time. I mean, for Darren, Stacy, and I as personally, I mean, Telesign was our entire career and, and all of our uh, all of our net worth. So if something was to happen to the business and something disruptive, then we'd be back at zero. And so along with the board and, and management and founders, I think there's a pretty universal consensus that the time is right to um, start seriously looking at some of the interests in the company. And so we actually engaged uh, bankers to help us run that process, which um, was, was very helpful. And as part of that process, they talked to Bix, which was actually one of Telesign's vendors and um, becoming one of our largest vendors. And uh, it became quite clear early in the process that they were certainly a front runner. And um, the deal made a lot of sense for both parties. For Bix, they're um, a part of Proximus, which is the largest telco in Belgium. And for them, it really helped them establish a big presence in the U.S., but also with the digital properties. So Telesign's customers are all of the largest web properties, so social networks. Um, email platforms, 20 of the top 25 biggest web properties in the world are customers. And so really let them go after and, and acquire um, a U.S. presence in a, in a different vertical and help them bridge their current customer base with Telesigns. And then for Telesign, um, Bix provided a few things. So one is uh, it provided assets that help Telesign become more cost competitive and then also have some differentiation in, in the market. And so, you know, because I think the deal made so much sense for both parties, um, Bix certainly emerged as a front runner, and we were able to to ultimately put together a deal with them that we announced on April of 2017 for the company to be acquired. And how how much was the uh, the acquisition? What were the terms there? Yeah, so the the cash considerations were uh, 230 million dollars. Got it. And at this point, when it was announced, how old were you, Ryan? How old was I? Yeah. Uh, it was in my my late 20s. Wow, what a ride! So, so I mean, it's unbelievable. So, so I guess what what was that day when when this was signed and and you know what what was that for you? Uh, it was it was a I mean it was a bit overwhelming and and uh, I had never gone through an acquisition process from this side of the table. We had acquired companies before, but never getting acquired. And it's amazing that journey. How many times a deal falls apart and. Uh, <laughs> how stressful it can be. So for us, I don't think we were unique, but it was a deal where it felt like it was over and going to fall apart and then it would it would uh, recover and then it would fall apart again and then recover. And really until the last moment, until the deal was signed, it felt like it was falling apart again. Um, there was language being negotiated until the last possible moment. Um, so it was a pretty, pretty overwhelming experience. Uh, and uh, certainly for me, that process from beginning to end was quite long and, and quite stressful. And I think I added a bunch of gray hair that year and lost some hair, which hopefully have grown back since then. But I'm sure that, I mean, you had a little bit of experience as well from, from being on the buy side. So now here you are, you've done it on the buy side. Now, obviously you've done it on the sell side. So what, what would you say have been your biggest lessons when it comes to acquisitions? I mean, it's, it's the same lesson that I would actually take from, from the whole Telesend journey, which is that uh, one is just patience and perseverance, but two is oftentimes those really tough moments, those moments when it feels like it's over, 
um, when you look back at it, it's it's usually something that's transformative and, and really required you to change what you're doing. And so um, in the early days of Telesend, there were multiple days where it felt like the company was going to go out of business. It felt like it was game over. And when you look back at each of those times, a year later, it, it really forced us to to do something differently, um, whether that was to launch a new product or think differently about how we're approaching a problem. And um, without having those challenging moments, we possible the company wouldn't have survived and we wouldn't have had those types of breakthroughs and in an acquisition process it was quite the same where it took a lot of patience perseverance and there were tons of those moments where it felt like it was all over and it wasn't going to happen but just kept having to, to push through and i think in this sense we had two parties that wanted to make something happen and um, when that's the case it, it uh, increases the likelihood quite a bit and in your case, uh, it took a year for you to be there, uh, and then you decided to leave. And the idea was to take six months to take your time to start thinking about like what will be next. Uh, but then you receive a call. What happened? Yeah, so I I, uh, I agreed to stay on for a little bit post acquisition, but but frankly, for me, my interest was trying to go do this again and, and start from scratch, and and uh, I really enjoyed those early moments and I wanted to go recreate that. And so shortly after the acquisition closed, I, I informed the, the CEO and um, the board that I was going to be leaving. And I, I was asked to stay on for a few more months, which wasn't a problem to me. I, I wasn't in a rush, but I just wanted to do the next thing. And my plan was to take six months off and then go start from scratch. And so I, uh, my plan for six months was to, to travel, enjoy life, uh, to see family and friends and, and folks that you neglect over, um, you know, when you're founding and, and building a business and, and you're busy with, with telesign. And so I, uh, I did that. I was enjoying life. I learned that I thought going into it that I'd be bored after a few weeks and I shocked myself. I wasn't, um, I traveled, I was, you know, evaluating different things. And about four months into my six months time off, I was given a call from the CEO of, of Bix, who's the company that acquired Telesign, and he uh, was going to make a, a leadership change, and he asked if I would come back and, and help out with the business for a bit. Um, so I, I agreed to do that. Um, I think my first or second day back, I was you know, on the phone uh, talking to CEO recruiters, um, trying to help, uh, help him really identify the path forward for the company and the leadership for the company. And um, within a few months, I was having a ton of fun. The, the company was doing really well. I really enjoyed and was passionate about the team that we had built and the direction that we were heading. And um, one, I, I decided I wanted to stay. And then two, I think because the company was doing well, they they agreed that it it, it also made sense that I stay. Um, so we we agreed it didn't make sense for the company to go out and acquire an external CEO. And so um, I formally uh, became CEO of the company, and it's been a it's been a really fun ride. And uh, for me, it, it's uh, it was very surprising as well when I left the company. I, I didn't have anything negative at all. I left on very, very good terms and um, great terms with everyone and um, gave a ton of notice. But also, I, I never expected to be back. It was, it was shocking to ever walk back in the office in that role. Um, so it was definitely very surprising. Um, but I've been having a ton of fun and, and really enjoying the ride. And kind of the next evolution and next phase for the company for me going from the very beginning to, to bringing senior leadership on, acquiring companies, getting acquired, leaving, coming back and running. It's a pretty wild journey for me. And where when you left, probably, I mean, during those four months where you were away and, and meeting your friends and going out and celebrating, whatever that was, 
I'm sure that you had some time as well to reflect and look back. And and perhaps even now, you know, like being completely detached from the business and being able to to see it from the outside, which obviously gives you a, a different perspective. So so I'm sure when when, you know, obviously at this point you were very well, you know, well off. I mean, after such a, a very good acquisition, a 230 million cash acquisition, plus whatever other incentives, you know, so it was not a, a thing about money for you. So, so what, what was the trigger that really, you know, like where you, where you really told yourself, I'm going to go back? Yeah. So, I mean, there were a lot of things that I certainly reflected on during that time. I think where I, I mean, a lot of it was just self-improvement and getting better at, at doing things myself. So pick, trying to pick up things like meditation and um, trying to have a more balanced life as opposed to just being, being uh, married to work. And, um, but also, I mean, when I came back, it wasn't that I had to go learn everything and, and to find a new strategy. I knew pretty clearly what needed to be done. Um, but, but honestly, when I came back, my plan was to be there for a month or two and, and help out and, uh, and, you know, help the company find new leadership. So for me, it was a pretty big no brainer. Like I love this company. If I can help out for a bit and put it on the right track, then the timing makes sense for me. I, I had done a lot of the things I wanted to do in my time off. I, hadn't jumped into something else, I can give up a few months and um, and have a lot of fun doing it. And so, um, to me, it was very much a, a temporary thing. And um, I'm not sure if it was a permanent thing at that point, if I would have jumped onto it, um, but it, it ended up working out quite well. And one of the typical questions that I ask the guests that come on the show is, I mean, TeleSign has been a, quite a ride for you. I mean, a company that you've been now uh, involved with from the start, which is in 2005 to, to even now, no, that is 2020. So, I mean, 15 years, uh, it's quite a, quite a good amount of time. So I guess now, uh, Ryan, if you had the opportunity to, to go back in time and have a chat with that younger Ryan, you know, that younger Ryan that was uh, still at USC and, and, and maybe getting into that incubator and thinking about maybe building a business. Knowing what you know now, what would be that one piece of business advice before launching a business that you would give to that younger Ryan and why? Yeah, there'd probably be two things that I think are interrelated. So uh, first would just be really like constantly be willing to adapt. So I think that was what you we were very good at early on was um, not being too rigid about the idea or the use case or the customer segments that we we're going after, but constantly evolving and constantly adapting. And um, so that would be kind of the most like tangible, tangible advice. And then kind of the personal advice goes back to what I said, which is that, I mean, success is not linear and that there's crazy moments and ups and downs and that um, in those moments that it feels like it's game over and the company's going out of business, um, that those are the most important moments because they force you to transform and they force you to go do great things. And, it's really, really challenging to, to think of those things in the moment. But even today, I mean, we get tough news today. I'm not luckily we don't, we don't face moments today where the company could go out of business overnight. But we get tough news, and I still have to remind myself to this day that those types of moments where it feels like it's game over, or you're you know go home with a big pit in your stomach, that those are the most important moments in doing something great. And that without that. It's not forcing you to change. It's not forcing you to, to innovate. It's not forcing you to do things differently. Very cool. Very cool. So, Ryan, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, yeah, I mean, LinkedIn is easy. I think I'm the only Ryan Disraeli, so it shouldn't be a, be a problem uh, finding me there. And then 
Uh, I'm a bit worse on email just due to the volume of emails, but you can try there as well. Um, pretty any any variation of my name will get to me. So Ryan at Ryan Dia, Art Israeli at um, Telesign.com. If you misspell the price, they'll get to me. Um, but I get a, a lot of emails, so um, LinkedIn is probably the best place to go. Amazing. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks, Alejandro. Had a great time, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.